The scripture reading this morning will be taken from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, be found on page 1041 in your pew Bibles. 1041. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in all the evil in all the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with, with, pray, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all the perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. It's an encouragement to us that you're here, and we hope we can be an encouragement to you also. It's been a great weekend here at the Mount Juliet Congregation. The marriage retreat this weekend seminar here at the building was greatly attended. It was a rich blessing to be a part of it and to learn from Lonnie Jones and the deep lessons. And each one of you that attended, we're grateful. It helped strengthen our homes and that helped strengthen the congregation and even this community. And we're grateful to each one that's making that kind of investment in your life. We're grateful to each one that helped in various ways, especially those that babysitted. Uh, a lot of hours that you kept, a lot of our children and we we greatly appreciate that and it's just wonderful to be a part of a congregation that that is constantly trying to grow spiritually there is a piece of artwork that is considered one of the most recognizable pieces of artwork in the world today it's also considered one of the most expensive pieces of artwork so far as the estimated value you recognize it Mona Lisa Leonardo, when he painted this, probably would have no idea what this would eventually become in its worth. You see, in the 60s, for insurance purposes, it was estimated at $100 million in worth. But then, just in 2012, that was reevaluated and the worth became $765 million. But as you know, it's been popular in several movies and Leonardo's work continues to be in high demand and continues to appreciate in price. And so now this year, this particular work is believed to be worth a smooth round $1 billion. And hey, I'm excited. I would be glad to sell my copy. And it's on copy paper and it's been run through a Dale 5100 color printer. And I would, I would let you have this for $100. 
And I would even make multiple copies if you wanted to buy multiple copies for $100. If you'd let me know, I would be glad to do business with you. But of course, you're not going to do business with me because you know that it is not the original. The word originate is, of course, the root of original. And the idea of originate is that that goes back to the very beginning, from which something rises, from which it stems. In other words, if you and I were walking by a stream of water and we said, let's see where this spring originates, you know exactly what we would do. We would start walking upstream until we found the original place, the mouth of this stream. It makes all the difference when we understand who we are and what we are to be if we understand where we have originated today. Especially in the last decade, there have been a lot of talk about same-sex marriages. It's important for us to make sure that as Christians that we know where that originates. It's also very important for us to know where what the U.S. culture calls traditional marriage. And by the way, I'm very glad that in the past years that has been a tradition in America. But you and I need to understand that there is an origination point, if you will, to quote traditional marriage that makes all the difference. And so this morning, I'd invite you into a series of scriptures that some of them we've looked at many times and even in recent times, but to be able to do what we need to do in this lesson, and that is to cover what needs to be covered, we need to take some time and go back to the original. If you will, open your Bibles to Genesis, the first chapter. In Genesis, the first chapter, we're reminded of the first five words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. That makes all the difference. Do you know how we arrived here? In the beginning was the origination point. In the beginning, God, he was the power that brought us what? Into creation. In the beginning, God created. Let's just read a few verses here. The heavens and the earth, skip down to verse three, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Notice how he did it. How did God create? God said, let there be light. Verse four, and the God saw that the light was good and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Just in the brief reading that we have here, and of course we could read the first 35 34 verses of the Bible and we could get a chronological history of this. But just in the brief reading, you see three things that are of great importance. One, we see God as the creator. Two, we see how God created. He spoke all of this into existence. That's amazing. You've probably heard me use this illustration before, but if, if I laid out a jar of peanut butter and a jar of jelly and a couple of slices of bread and, and a knife right there and I said, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to watch this, I'm going to speak that knife into creating that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And what if I said, knife, spread that peanut butter over the bread, spread that jelly over the bread. 
First thing you say, it's a magic act. How'd it happen? I said, no, it's not magic. I really did that. If you thought I could really do that, you would walk away from here and you say, I've seen something I've never seen before. This guy was able to speak things into motion. That's unbelievable. Brother, he didn't speak the world into motion. Now what if I said the table was clean? Peanut butter and jelly sandwich appear. Where'd it come from? That's the power. It's not just the fact that God is the creator. We learn in Genesis 1 that God created by the force of his word. We understand the power of his word. And in this chapter, we realize that he was able to do all of this in six days and rest on the seventh, which again tells us the power of God to be able to create all of this universe by his word in six days. Is that important to know? Absolutely, it's important. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is being introduced in the Gospels, you remember the Gospel of John? You remember the first few verses tell us that he is God? But then in verse 3, all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. Or look over at Acts the 17th chapter when Paul walked into Athens for the first time and when he addresses the audience in Acts the 17th chapter, he had Stoics there and Epicureans there and they didn't know the Almighty God but they had, they had an altar and upon that altar they had an inscription to the unknown God and so he wants to introduce the unknown God to them. And so in Acts 17 and verse 24, notice he says, but God who made the world and everything in it, that's where he's going to begin. God who made the world and everything in it. Notice in 25, at the end of 25, he says, talking about God, he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Beginning of 26, he has made from one blood every nation of men. Go to 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think, etc. Do you see what he's doing throughout this entire lesson? This entire lesson, there's people that don't know God and what he is doing is saying, I need you to understand God is the creator. John, how are you going to introduce Jesus Christ to us? I need you to understand he's God and God is the creator. God, give us a history about where we came from. Take us to our point of origin. And he would open up the Bible by saying, I need you to see where you've come from. I am your creator. When we see this, we see the powerful impact that it would have on individuals because if we truly understand that we are the creation, we then will truly submit to the creator if we understand the power of his word. Is that sinking in? If his word created us, we literally obeyed him through creation. Why would we not obey him through our life? Open your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 33. This is a beautiful chapter that you may want to go back and spend more time in. It's a chapter about praising God. And he tells us reasons why God is worthy of our praise. And I want to scan a few verses with you so that we can appreciate 
what the psalmist appreciates because it would make us more godly. And so the first five verses, he talks about ways in that day that they were going to praise God. And look at verse six. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all of the host of them by the breath of his mouth. You see what the psalmist is doing here? He's placing an emphasis not simply on the fact that God is the God of creation, but the way God's word was the power of creation. And so he's praising God for this and, and how he did that in verse seven even. And look in verse eight. Let the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Brethren, the very mountains obeyed God because when God spoke them into existence, they stood there. The oak tree and the very first one that God created, they obeyed God and they still were bearing acorns that go into the ground and, and bear other trees. And that is literally obedience to God's plan. And so he's saying, look at creation. It all came about because of the word of God and it's still obeying God today. Stand in awe of him, praise him as you see the power through creation. Verse 10, we see the weakness of man. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of people of no effect. Verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. What is he doing there? He is showing us that even though he is so great, what our nature is, is to think that, but look how great we are. Especially when we pull together early in human history, we could build a tower up to the heavens. Look how great we are. We could build an, a nation that's strong enough. We don't have to have God. We can defend ourselves. And if you read deeper into this very same chapter, he tells kings how foolish they are whenever they find their security in their army or in their horses because the blessing is going to come to the nation whose God is the Lord and who trust in the Lord. Listen, we must be thankful for men and women that are willing to sacrifice in military service to protect our nation. And so this is not a statement of a lack of appreciation for them. But we as Christians know that God uses them to accomplish his will. And the strength of America for over the past 200 years has not been in the military. The strength of America has been that God has protected America. That's what Psalm 33 is talking about. Nations that lean upon God, God will protect. But also through the scriptures, we see that nations that stop leaning upon God, God will stop protecting them and how foolish it is for them to think, I don't need God. We've got a great military. We don't need God at all. And so what have we seen over the past few minutes? In just a few brief passages, we've seen how over and over throughout the scriptures, it is important for us to know that God is the God of creation. And that if we're going to understand anything about God, we need to go back to the beginning if we're to have a firm and clear understanding. But we also have seen over and over that it's God's word. And so therefore, if his word is that powerful, why would we not willingly submit to his word and continue obeying that word today? 
So therefore, origin makes all the difference. When we think about the creation of God in Genesis 1, I'd like for you to think with me of Genesis 2 in just a moment. We're going to see some powerful passages. I'd like for you, though, before we leave Genesis 1, as a setup for Genesis 2, I'd like for you to look back with me in Genesis 1 and 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. And then man was created to have dominion over all the other beasts, and etc. 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And you remember have a little more insight in the second chapter in verse seven. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and he breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Why are we made after the image of God and other aspects of God's creation, even though they carry his fingerprints, we see the fact that it demands a designer, but it is not made after the image of God. The mountain ranges are not made after the image of God, as majestic and beautiful as they are. That little dog that you're tempted to call your best friend that you love dearly. It's not made after the image of God. What is it that's different about man, that man is made after the image of God? We know that God breathed into the nostrils of man. We just read the breath of life. Even though we had a point to begin our life, our soul will live on into eternity. Now, God has been eternal. We will live on forever in our soul. And so that gift of give, have been given a soul that will live on is a part of the image of God. But there is a second thing that I believe very much is a part of the image of God. Did you notice the language already back up in 1 and 26? Let us make man in our own image. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit they work together in creation and the conversation and the communication and the plans were made and they did this together. In other words, what we learn is that God is a God of relationships. And when we go down to the second chapter and we begin reading verse 18, at that point, the emphasis about God creating man being like him and different from all the other parts of creation is the depth of the relationship that God has created us to enjoy. In other words, the very fact that you and I can enjoy deep, real, genuine, fruitful relationships is a reflection of the image of God. I know I'm, I'm, I'm walking on uh, thin ice here to say this, but that little dog that you love so much that you're tempting to say we have such a good relationship in its purest sense, relationships, probably not even the word we ought to use to describe what we enjoy about our pets. I'm not anti-pets. I grew up with a dog all my life on the farm and horses and, and a cat at the barn where they belong. And I didn't say that. And, and listen, I... All I'm trying to do is get you to think for a moment about what is it that is so different about us when it comes to relationships. The ability to communicate, the ability to interact in each other's lives, the ability to communicate deeply 
what we fear, what we are challenged with, what we feel in relationship, the, be, the ability to be able to sacrifice greatly for the benefit of others. We can go on and on, but those are some of the things that we enjoy in relationships that is a part of the image of God. And literally, we are invited into that kind of relationship with Him that none of the rest of creation gets to enjoy. And so we hear language like relationship type language in 18 of the second chapter. And the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. That, that points to relationship or the lack of it. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. In other words, one that's not going to be exactly like him, but they're going to be able to share in this special relationship. And then you probably know 19 and 20 where, where God had him to name the animals and he recognized that out of all those animals, there wasn't one that he could share in a relationship with. And then he is put into the deep sleep and God removes the rib and God creates woman and woman comes up to him. And can you imagine, I'm assuming that Adam and Eve were Beautiful, awesome specimens of the human race. No genetic defects. Can you imagine what did Adam look like? What did Eve look like? But whatever it was, can you imagine when Adam looked over at the one he could share relationship with on earth and to be able to look over and know that her origin is of God, but from his rib, you're bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I'm going to call you woman. Ish, Isha. And then we have that in 24, that it wasn't necessarily what Adam and Eve did in the fullness of it, but it's the pattern. And the reason I say that, of course, is Adam and Eve didn't have a mother and father to leave, to, to come into this relationship. But when we think about, as people describe traditional marriages, I'm not saying it's wrong to call this traditional marriage because in America, thank God that it's been the tradition up to this point. But, but there's something much greater value and points to a much deeper conviction when we realize that this that is so oftentimes called traditional marriage, we would do better to call it holy matrimony. The idea that it is from God. This is his pure plan don't defile it, holy, opposite of being defiled. Don't defile this plan, holy matrimony. And so in 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined. This, this, that's talking to that commitment that we make to bring our lives together. Be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And when we look at other teachings throughout the Bible, we learn how this is to be a lifetime commitment. We learn that, that this is to be the only place that a sexual interaction among human beings is to ever take place. And so it really becomes powerful as we see what God's plan is for us. And we also see, and, and I'm just going to mention these to you just quickly. In Malachi 2, whenever they were defiling God's holy plan, Instead of just saying, let me talk to you about what you need to do. In verse 15, he said, let's go back to the beginning. He didn't use those words, but he said, did he not make them one? In other words, did he not make one Eve for one Adam? 
You see, they were putting away their first wives and they were going and taking wives and God was not pleased with that. But then they were also taking wives from nations God said, do not take wives from. So there were two things that he was so disappointed. Tears were filling the altar, tears of God. He wasn't accepting their sacrifice. And Matthew, the 19th chapter, verse three, the question is, can we divorce for any cause? And the answer was, have you not read that, notice this, that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female. Do you realize they're asking a question, can we divorce for any reason? In verse four, he says, let's talk about Genesis one. And then in verse five, he quotes Genesis 2, 24. Therefore shall a man leave his mother and father. Do you see what he's doing here? The question is, what are we gonna do with this topic of marriage, Jesus? And of course, they, they had faulty reasons for why they were asking, but for just a moment, let's, let's pretend that they were sincere because when we read it, we're sincere. Lord, I, I wanna do this the way you want it to be done. Can we divorce for any reason? And he says, do you know your God of Genesis 1? If so, have you read what your God said in Genesis 2? And then he goes from there to answer that. We could go to Ephesians 5 and, and the teaching of, of Christ and the church is like the husband and the wife. And he quotes that very same passage of Genesis 2. So what's the point? The point is this. There's a lot of people that are our neighbors that are sincerely confused right now because there's people they know and they love and that have been good people and good friends who are homosexuals. And so the idea of denying them the right of marriage when after all, if they were married legally, they could have perhaps the question is a greater form of commitment. They could also enjoy legal rights that come in America of having a legal marriage. And so therefore, who are we to say that that is not acceptable? The Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, paving the way for gay marriages to resume in California was the heading of one of the NBC news articles that came out in late June. You probably know, but the Defense of Marriage Act was the act that clearly identified marriage as a committed legal relationship between a man and a woman. It's ironic that the Supreme Court, the Supreme Judge has already ruled on this, but in our land, the Supreme Court said we're not going to defend DOMA anymore. We're not going to let it be upheld. And so therefore, it gave the states the right to say, you can honor, you can recognize gay marriages. But this morning, even though there's a lot of things we could discuss, we're asking a simple question. Where did that come from? In the scripture text this morning in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, you may have noticed that in verse 11, he talked about that we have to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And in verse 12, you may have noticed we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. As much as we sometime might be tempted to make this argument against an individual, against an individual that's in an office, maybe against individuals that sit on benches, Maybe against individuals that are neighbors that, that live the homosexual lifestyle. 
We need to recognize that what we are dealing with today is something that is so much greater than individuals. Our enemy has never, and if we're living righteously, will never be flesh and blood. Our enemy is Satan, and I want you to notice this. Here he says that we would be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That word is actually a compound word, and one part of the word is, is methodi, uh, method, is, is uh, where we get our word method. And, and when we think about it, the next part of the word would be the idea of trickery or, or cunning. And so literally, Paul here is saying, we have to be willing and able to stand against the cunning craftiness of the method of Satan. Do you realize that today if we wanted to point our finger at whoever is responsible for what has happened over the past two months here in America, do you realize they would not even be alive? You can go back and you can study the history of America and you can see that Satan has been very methodical. This movement began far greater than anyone's lifetime on this earth. In other words, before you could ever get to Genesis 2 and rip that page out of the Bible, you would have to first rip out Genesis 1. Let me tell you what I'm thinking about here. In the 18th century, the late 18th century, when we look at Newton and other scientists, most all of them believed, European scientists, they believed in a literal interpretation of the Bible in Genesis' account of creation. Almost all of them did. Almost everybody that called themselves religious did. But shortly after that time period, the beginning of the 19th century, as geology began to grow as a science, scientists began to scratch their head and say, we recognize that the earth ages very slowly. So then, therefore, they looked at Genesis 1, and the idea was, how could the earth only be 6,000 years old? At that time, the date was 4,004 B.C. that many people believed that was the beginning of time. And so they would scratch their head and they would say, we have doubts about if this earth that we're studying now, especially in geology, if this earth we're studying, could it only be 6,000 years old? Now, notice the power of Genesis 1 is the power of God. Can God make an earth in six days? And if he did make an earth in six days, did he make an infant earth or a mature earth? When on day six, Adam looked over at an oak tree and he said, God, how old is that tree? It's three days old. So how's God going to answer that? Well, Adam, that tree was created on day three, three days ago. But now if you cut it down, you're going to probably be able to count about 95 rings in it because I think I made that one look like it was 95 years old. That mountain range over there, it's only a few days old, but it looks like it's fill in the blank. But scientists began to challenge if the age of the earth was right. And of course, when they began to challenge that, they began to doubt eventually that there was even a God. So when Darwin does his work in the middle of the 19th century, it really begins to fuel the idea of origin. That's what he wrote about. 
And so then we come to the 20th century in 1925, and this is just one example. It's not that it was a huge turning point, but one example was the Scopes trial. Any of us that were on stateside campaign in Dayton, Tennessee, many of us toured that very courtroom that that trial took place. And you remember that it was much of a media circus for its day. And what it did, according to some newspapers, it put God on trial. In other words, it somewhat made it acceptable in America to be very open and vocal about the fact, I believe in evolution. I believe in a God, in, in a world that is created without God. But you know what? All of that that took place over those many, many decades, over 100 years, it took until 1960 before most school books in public school systems contained evolution. Now, isn't that interesting that in 1960s was when it finally hit our students was also not by happenstance, I believe firmly the calculation of, of Satan. That was when he's saying, now we're getting Genesis 1 ripped out of the Bible. Now we can start on Genesis 2. We don't have to have the boundaries of marriage to have sexual interaction. And so the sexual revolution began in America free love. Listen, that could have never taken root in a country that had Genesis 1 firmly in place. And so when you study the sexual revolution, you see that it takes time. And if you want to call the revolution a progression or a digression, whichever way you want to see it, it, it takes time to get to the point where finally the very fabric of the family is being torn away by the way you define marriage. And it's taken us from the 60s to 2013 for it to literally take place. Tonight, we'll come back and we'll study a little bit more just on the topic of homosexuality and try to give a better understanding to that. Isn't it amazing when we look at the, or, the ordination of these two marriages. Define for us the beginning of the traditional marriage. We have to go all the way back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Define for us where same-sex marriages originated. Well, we have to go back to scientists ripping out Genesis 1 and society accepting it. Then we have to go back to the ripping out of Genesis 2, and it takes time, but society finally accepts it. And then we can get to the point that we can talk about something that, of course, is not biblical and it's somewhat an oxymoron, but same-sex marriages. Dorothy Sayers said, It is precisely because of the eternity outside time that everything in time becomes valuable and important and meaningful. Therefore, Christianity makes it of urgent importance that everything we do here should be rightly related to what we eternally are. Eternal life is the sole sanction for the values of life. We will have an opportunity in the future to express the will of God in amazing ways. 
And one of the ways that we will be able to express the eternal existence of God is the way we conduct our families, the way we conduct our lives, the way we conduct our moral behavior. It will speak volumes for God because, listen, you cannot expect people who do not believe in Genesis 1 to live Genesis 2. And if you say, I'm fed up with America, I wish she would turn back. You are pipeline dreaming if you think she's going to turn back because of some great attack against same-sex marriages. Now, if you want to get busy and evangelize and get people to believing in the almighty God of creation, then we can take back America. But there's no such thing of putting Genesis 2 back in people's lives before you put Genesis 1 in people's lives. Oh, we send missionaries around the world, but brethren, if you want a better life for your children, we better get serious about sending missionaries around America. And so it is. We don't have an enemy on this earth that's flesh and blood. Our enemy is the one that's been calculating against us and our children for over a hundred years. What we have seen in 2013, no doubt, in my mind, was in Satan's mind over a hundred years ago. What did we learn today? Our commitment to God demands commitment to his words. Number two, his word defines marriage as being one man and one woman. Number three, let's practice love and boldness as we stand with God, no matter who opposes us. Come back tonight and we'll continue a similar topic of this as we look at living in a culture of homosexuality. This morning, maybe you look at your life and you consider your origin and you realize that you're living in separate existence from your God of creation. There will never be order in your life. There'll never be stability in your life that you need if you live separate from your creator. If you're ready to come to him this morning, we would love to assist you in any way that we can. If you're ready to be immersed into Christ, if you're ready to, to be restored, if we